At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. After voting in four elections and hundreds of millions of dollars later, the election year is over for Georgians. The people have spoken. And while Democrat Raphael Warnock has secured a six-year term in the U.S. Senate, Georgia has secured its purple state status. Like the swingiest swing state in the country is Georgia. It's going to be one of the central battleground states in our politics and presidential politics for the next, uh, for as far as the eye can see. Will we be the proverbial swing state that gets inundated with ads for elections to come? What's Georgia's political power going forward? And how will a Republican state government work with two Democratic U.S. Senators? I'm Raul Bally, politics reporter for WABE. I'm Emma Hurt, a politics reporter with Axios, and I'm sad this is our last episode. I'm Sam Greenglass, also sad, also a politics reporter for WABE. And I'm Susanna Capaluto. And yes, this is the last edition of Georgia Votes 2022, a podcast about the midterms. I vote because it's a privilege. I vote it's a duty. because I want to make an and impact. I vote my because local I want leaders who care voting about Voting is the gift of so freedom. So voting matters to me because I believe there is value in my voice. Sam, Emma, and Raul, great to see every one of you. Not to go into too much Monday morning quarterbacking here, but why don't each of you just give us a nugget from election night that you found interesting? Senator Raphael Warnock improved his margins in 148 out of 159 counties, going from November to the December runoff. That's incredible. That means he improved in all sorts of counties, Republican, Democratic, rural, urban, suburban. Look, he obviously didn't win all those counties, but a few votes here and a few votes there, and it all adds up. But there's this incredible map out there from J. Miles Coleman at the University of Virginia Center for Politics about North Fulton County, a place that all of us spent a lot of time in. It's one of the richest, most affluent suburbs in Georgia, if not the country. In November, Governor Brian Kemp won it with 52% of the vote. One month later, Senator Warnock won it with 57%, a swing of 9%. It's really astounding, you're right, Raul, and I think it's reflective of these swing voters that we've been talking about, these sort of softer Republicans or Republican even voters who just couldn't get behind Herschel Walker himself. And Warnock's campaign saw that opening and went for it consistently through the runoff, and Walker was never able to really grab a hold of that narrative and and take control. I mean, one thing that stood out to me was that Walker even underperformed in the county of his own hometown, Johnson County. He got about 65 fewer votes than he did in November in such a small county. That's a lot of votes. So, I mean, while we saw high election day turnout and that gave Republicans some cautious optimism that, wow, maybe we can pull this off, they didn't see that turnout break down in the way that they needed to, to have a path to victory. And so it ended up being a much earlier night, I think, than some of us might have assumed. One thing surprised me is when that night started to come to an end was that Herschel Walker got up on the stage and he conceded. He said he didn't make any excuses. And 
that was refreshing and maybe something that we didn't necessarily know for sure was going to happen, um, given some of the rhetoric on the campaign trail and what we've heard from other candidates who come from the same wing of the Republican Party as he does. There's no excuses in life. And I'm not going to make any excuses now because we put up one heck of a fight. And I was there when Walker said that. And and an interesting thing I wanted to tell you about that happened before that, I appeared on Canadian television and also appeared on a Washington, D.C. station. And they asked me, do you believe Herschel Walker was going to concede? So definitely, Sam, that was one of the things we were watching for once we kind of realized what the result would be. Something I've heard from people outside of Georgia is surprise at how close the race was, given all of Walker's baggage. And I think what this race outcome underscores, this still tight margin, is that Georgia is really politically divided. So we are not talking about Georgia being anything close to a blue state today, but I think we can say that it is purple. Democrats can win here, but it is nowhere near a given. And Georgia's going to be a political battleground in 2024 and beyond. But I think a question out of this is, could Warnock have one against a different candidate that didn't have these unique set of special circumstances? Would this race have been as competitive without going up against a candidate like Herschel Walker? My question has always been, can Georgia Democrats win without Trump in the picture? I think it is still an open question, Susanna, though it is true that while Warnock did, you know, attack Walker for his Trump endorsement, Walker himself, this is one thing his campaign was able to do effectively, which is keep Trump away from Georgia in the general election. And and so I I do think that, you know, given the slim margin, as Sam said, you can point to many different things that could have made the difference. Trump could have been it. But what I'm hearing from Republicans and strategists is that Walker definitely could have won even with a Trump endorsement. And even with his scandals, the problem was how his campaign was unable to effectively respond to them, in part because it seemed like the candidate was not willing to own up to much of it and and would just have flat denials, flat denials. And that just contributes to the narrative that Warnock kept mining, which is that he's a liar, you can't trust him. And it worked. But again, that slim margin, as Sam said, is so important because it was just under... 100,000 votes that made the difference on Tuesday. Yeah, someone said that's a Sanford Stadium full of people. Yeah. I still have to ask, are we really purple in Georgia? And and you, because you can't dismiss what happened in November. Republicans got a congressional seat back. Granted, that was through redistricting. But they held the Georgia House. They held the Georgia Senate. They held on to the governorship. So... I think the fair argument can be made that the state, it continues to shift towards being more democratic. But to say it's purple, I'm not 100% sure. We are a battleground, though. So, Raul, I think you make a really good point. I think there's a difference between being closely politically divided when it comes to elections, which I think it's true that Georgia is, and who controls power in the state of Georgia, which, Raul, you're right, it is still a Republican-dominated state at all levels of state government. I mean, one thing I'll note is that with the congressional seat, with the Georgia House, with the Georgia Senate, redistricting and gerrymandering plays a big part in 
the margins that Republicans have in this current moment. But when it comes to what we saw in November, we shouldn't discount that. But I think what it means is that Democrats can win elections in Georgia and so can Republicans and that there's going to be a lot of money and time and attention put into winning races in Georgia in the years to come because both parties are truly in the game. And I think that's what makes this a purple state. Sam, we will get a test of that maybe next year if we have an election for the Public Service Commission, which will prove if we are truly a Republican or Democratic state. That is a very fitting way to end this segment because (laughs) Susanna is always pushing the PSC line of thinking. That's how we can tell. I agree. Great point, because as we've talked about before, something like the PSC in which people have no sense of who these people are and what that job is, it solely comes down to party loyalty. And that's where you get to see really a pulse beat on that dynamic. So what you're really saying is we're going to be launching Georgia Votes 2023 next year. No. (laughs) Is there enough PSC to talk about for 20 minutes every single week? I don't know. Maybe. Plant Vogel is a big conversation. That would be the most boring podcast ever. (laughs) um, It shouldn't be. I want to get into this uh, blame game now that's going on among Republicans on why Walker lost. I'm curious how you think this divide in the Republican Party could play out on the state level when the legislature meets next month. So... Emma has already done some great reporting on this. There is so much exhaustion around runoff. So that is something I definitely can see happening at the legislature of what to do about the runoffs. A couple of other things that I've heard, what to do about the election calendar and what to do about, you know, the tallying results and how those are handled at night. And I'm also going to look forward to anything that happens with the state Republican Party and what happens with their leadership. A lot of questions there about what was and was not done by the state Republican Party this election cycle. I think either way, Kemp still comes away from this election cycle with a lot of credibility heading into his second term. I mean, sure, he threw his resources to Walker at the end and it didn't work. He couldn't pull him across the finish line. But I think Republicans will look at the Walker campaign and they will look at the Kemp campaign and be really thankful that they renominated Kemp because he was able to win in this climate and Walker was not. I think ultimately, to the point of the blame game, among Republican strategists who really have run campaigns in Georgia, it, it goes back to the candidate and the way that campaign was able to function with that candidate. That doesn't necessarily just refer to his bio, which, again, people thought could have been handled in a way that might have still won the race. But it was his campaign staff's ability to manage each scandal because um, my understanding is they weren't really effectively able to do their jobs. So while we're litigating what happened in these last couple of months, which is always a fraught conversation and people on all sides have lots of different feelings about what went wrong, what went right and why. Let's take a moment to talk about the Democrats just for a second. Lauren Growargo, the chief for the Abrams campaign, longtime aide, had a 52 tweet thread this week. Emma, I know you've spent some time reading through that. I'm curious what you make of it and, you know, what this says about this moment we're in where all the campaigns are trying to kind of piece through the, the the chips as they fell over the last couple of months. Yeah, I mean, it's a reminder again of how much Abrams's star seems to have fallen since two years ago, where it is true that she was the one who immediately endorsed Raphael Warnock after she had been courted to be Senate candidate herself. 
and decided not to do it. But this thread from Lauren Grewargo has really gotten some of the backs up of some Georgia Democrats because it effectively takes credit for Warnock's victory and simultaneously says that Abrams's work in promoting Warnock and Ossoff in 2020 and 2021, and Biden, I should say, is what made her such a target of the right and what made the race unwinnable. That's the argument. And and a lot of Democrats in Georgia have issues with that. But it is, I think, noteworthy to see that this is how Wargo and perhaps Abrams herself are interpreting her loss as they watch Warnock take a six-year term. I think maybe the reality is often that these narratives are a lot more complicated than anyone wants to let on. I mean, you could see a world in which there are nuggets of that thread that carry weight, that, you know, she did play a big role in pushing Georgia to the place it is today where it is competitive. But also, I think Warnock ran a really different campaign than Abrams did in the same year, right? Like, he deployed a different strategy that worked potentially more successfully than Abrams' campaign, right? Like, that's part of it, too. Well, let's take a break. You're listening to Georgia Votes 2022, and Georgia has voted. I'm Susanna Capaluto. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Welcome back to the last episode of Georgia Votes 2022, today with Emma, Sam, and Raul. So looking back at almost a year of covering this election, what will you miss or not miss? I will not miss the people who are pontificating or talking about Georgia's elections without being on the ground here. I was deeply frustrated by what I was seeing on both sides. Uh, of just folks saying, here's what's happening in Georgia. And Emma and Sam and I know that that's not what was happening here. That included news media where you'd have, you know, a, a reporter just dropping in for a day or two. That was something that was deeply frustrating because then the questions would come to me, hey, is this what's happening in Georgia? Is that what's happening in Georgia? When it wasn't. And it, it leaves me to this one point that I, I want to make for our audience whether it's in the area you live in or an area you're interested in, follow the reporters that live and work there. Whether it's Emma, Sam, me, your local public radio station, a conservative talk show host who lives in that area. Those are the people who know what's going on. And I think that was one of the frustrations because then I would do a national appearance. I'd be asked a question and I'm like, that is nothing related to what's going on here in Georgia. Yeah, I definitely heard on election night a TV anchor about to go on a national broadcast say, well, I better hope I can pretend I know what I'm talking about here. And it does kind of underscore the point that (laughs) Raul made that, you know, we've all been in the trenches for a year now and uh, a lot of people dip in for the end. But I think the thing that I will miss most is getting to spend time in so many different parts of Georgia as part of your job on a weekly basis. Georgia is such a unique and diverse state with so many different parts that are different from each other, uh, with unique characteristics and people. And just, I feel lucky as part of my day job 
to get to travel around the state and see so many different parts of it. And I think that's one of the things that's most exciting about being on a campaign. You know, you are often in towns and parts of Georgia that you wouldn't have reason to stop by otherwise in your daily life, but you get to spend time in and that's really cool. And also I think all the press corps who have been together on this campaign at these same events for so long, you kind of form this bond and that's really nice. And I think I will miss getting to see everyone at these things all the time. But at the same time, now that we don't have to cover a campaign every day, we can like do other things that are not going to a Warnock or Walker speech. Like we could go bowling, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to go bowling. Roel, I will also not miss the parachute journalists, but don't worry, they'll be back. They'll be back. I think specifically the thing that I will not miss is the emails and DMs and phone calls from these parachute journalists and their producers trying to figure out how to do the job of covering Georgia politics, asking questions like, how do you find early voting locations in Georgia? And then I, like, where will Herschel Walker be tomorrow? And um, having to decide whether or not to respond to some of these people. I mean, the most specific example, the craziest example I have is a producer from, uh, you know, a coastal city who wanted specifically to see Herschel Walker over the weekend near Atlanta and was befuddled as to why Walker would spend time on the Friday outside of Atlanta in Valdosta, which is very far south in Georgia. And she asked me, well, why would he do that? I said, well, there are voters there. (laughs) Um, Sorry that it doesn't gel with your schedule of being near Atlanta. Anyway, I will not miss those people. Uh, Love my fellow journalists, but y'all do your own research. Good point. And one thing I would like to bring up is misinformation that started immediately after the election. I saw claims online of, quote, ballot harvesting in Atlanta. That was, of course, completely untrue. But these kind of messages do poison people already vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Do you think this kind of propaganda for the gullible, I like to call it, will continue or will it take a break for a while and return for 2024? It definitely has seen a big decrease from 2020. I mean, we saw these claims, we saw them catch some air, but really nothing near the level when you have a president spreading them himself. And I I do take heart in that. And that does go to the hope of some of Georgia's top election officials that part of the process of this ending is just time and people kind of the emotion fading away. And at the same time, also, it's hard for this kind of right-wing conspiracy theory to take shape effectively when Republicans win by eight points in in November. I still think on some level, we're going to be dealing with that propaganda, that misinformation, because I think we're still going to be ending up in courtrooms, still ending up with lawsuits. This past year, I spent more time dealing with, you know, lawsuits and being in courtrooms around elections than I have in easily two decades. So I think on some level, we're still going to be dealing with it and we're still going to be possibly dealing with lawsuits and and court filings. And that's it for Georgia Votes 2022. We may see you for Georgia Votes 2024, but come January, we will present Gold Dome Scramble. 
It's a podcast all about the Georgia legislature. It's a pop-up podcast with our sister pod, Political Breakfast. So make sure to subscribe to Political Breakfast and you will get the Gold Dome Scramble in your podcast feed each week. The Georgia General Assembly is in session. Roll, Sam and Emma, it's been quite a ride. It's been so fun. Thanks, y'all, for having me along. And now we're going to go celebrate. And go bowling. (laughs) And now we go bowling. Georgia Votes Bowling Team, eh? (laughs) Well, Georgia Votes 2022 is a production of the WABE Politics Desk. Our producer is the super creative Kevin Rinker. From all of us here at WABE, thank you for your support and for listening to Georgia Votes 2022. We're going bowling!